Hello, Internet. I'm Stephen Harowitz, and I'll be your host for this episode of Campfire at Home, recorded here in St. Louis, Missouri. Almost every month, we gather at the campfire to hear stories about life and how we live it, from those everyday voices that live around us. Campfire at Home is how we bring that live storytelling experience to you, wherever you are. In this episode, I have something special for you, because we are remastering a few of our lost episodes. This episode is one of our first six campfires ever, before we even had a formal podcast. And for a long time, these episodes sat in an old SoundCloud account Campfire had. But it was clear we were doing those storytellers and their stories a disservice by not bringing them to this podcast you're listening to. We are proud to bring you a remastered version of these campfires. Let's head to the campfire to listen to Jenny's stories, answering the question, where do you go to heal? Last February, I threw a thank you for helping me not kill myself party. After vetting the idea with a couple of friends to make sure that it wasn't too offensive, I sent an an invitation to some of my closest friends saying, this last year has been really rough and you helped me make it through. Join me for a thank you for not killing me party. Killing myself, they didn't try to kill me. (laughs) (laughs) So this group gathered around We sat in my living room. I cooked brunch. We talked about life. We celebrated life. We laughed together. And we just enjoyed being each other's company. And it was a profound space of healing. It was a space of healing that I needed to signal to that group of people that I was, again, okay. It was a small act of rebellion to name that I had been so depressed and I wanted people to know that I saw them see me And it was a place of celebration. It had all the things a party should have. It had good food. It had Bloody Marys and mimosas. It had a banner that was made by a friend that said, with friends, you are invincible. And it had party favors. When people left that party, I gave them all a small moleskin notebook with a quote from one of my favorite theologians. It looked exactly like this. The quote reads, so much broke and broke down this year. In my life, in the lives of people I love, lives broke, hearts broke, health broke, minds broke. On the first Sunday of Advent, our preacher Veronica said that this is life's nature, that lives and hearts get broken. Those of people we love, those of people we'll never meet. She said, the world sometimes feel like the waiting room of an emergency ward, and that we, who are more or less okay for now, need to take the tenderest possible care of the more wounded people in the waiting room until the healer comes. You sit with people, she said, you bring them juice and graham crackers. It's from Annie Lamott in Traveling Mercies. So many people reached out to me with the tenderest care during the eight months where I couldn't get my feet underneath me. And those were tiny moments of healing that I was able to string together with some of my own work to get my feet underneath me again. People did amazing things. A group of loved ones organized to send me lunch to work a couple times a week so I didn't have to think about feeding myself. 
was pretty incredible that I didn't have to think about grocery shopping, I didn't have to pack a lunch. And people had sent me food from as far away as Egypt. My friend came and visited me, people took me out, people came to stay with me, people did my dishes. There were so many small, tender acts of kindness during that period of my life. And I'm forever grateful for them. I got to that place for a number of reasons. The first was things started shifting in my workplace. I get a lot of self-efficacy from my work. It's where I find meaning. It's where I find purpose. It's where I know that I matter. And things started shifting in a way that I wasn't sure that I mattered anymore. I couldn't find the place where I fit, and it was a place that I loved dearly. I sat with that and tried to figure out what to do. Because I loved the place so dearly, it wasn't a place that I wanted to leave. And because I loved the people there so dearly, and those people were people who were giving those tender kindnesses to me, I didn't want to leave that space. But I was in this fog, and I couldn't figure out how to handle it. During that time, the lives of my loved ones broke too. My sister was in a car accident. A friend's partner had mental health issues. There was death. There was sickness. All of these things layered around me, and I became less and less able to live a full and happy life. It was like the darkness came around me like a warm, cozy blanket. And all I wanted to do was sink into its coziness, to let it invite me to leave the rest of the world and to be alone with that darkness. Have you felt that way? Do you know what it means to be so sad that you don't want to get out of bed in the morning? Maybe you don't. I actually hope that you don't. But I bet you have some understanding of sadness, some understanding of a brokenness in your life. I'd like to ask you to just think about that for a minute. So there I was. I would get up in the morning and I would lay in bed and I would ask myself, is today the day that I die? And then, invariably, I would tell myself no. I'd plant my feet firmly on the ground, I'd take a shower, and I'd go to work. Throughout those days, I remembered what it was night like to be enlivened. I remembered what it was like to feel happiness and joy. Oftentimes it was because of those tender moments that other people gave to me. Those were the first openings into my healing. This time was really puzzling to me. I've spent most of my adult life studying brokenness, grief, and healing. It all started before I could even drive. My mom switched churches and I met a pastor who became a mentor who became one of my closest friends. His name was Monty and he was this tall, bald, goofy-looking guy with an impish smile and a glint in his eye. He was the first person to make fun of you when you walked into a room, and he was the first person to look you dead in the eye and tell you that he loved you when you left a room. 
Mani and I spent every Thursday during my high school career at a coffee shop together talking about life. He taught me what it meant to love. He taught me what it meant to have a family outside of my family. He taught me, he taught me what it meant to know myself de dearly and deeply. He taught me about deep listening. He taught me about God. He taught me so many really important things on those Thursday afternoons in the coffee shop. Based on my experience with Monty, I decided that I wanted to pursue something in the healing arts or in the healing space in college. College was a little bit bumpy for me. I went to five or maybe six of them. And I, um, when I have to get my transcripts sent from somewhere, it's, it's really annoying. Um, but I, um, I decided I wanted to pursue something in healing. I had spent my time in high school studying math and science. I went to a STEM high school and thought I was going to like be a scientist or engineer. But that human interaction with Monty changed that for me. So I bounced around colleges trying to decide if I was a psychology major or if I was a religion major, how I was going to figure out how to pursue this kind of way of being alongside people so they could become better thems. I ended up, rather serendipitously, sitting across a desk from a head of a social work program at my last college. I did finally graduate. And um, she listened to my story and she said, you know, you talk about psychology and religion, but you sound like a social worker. In that moment, I decided to pursue my bachelor's in social work. It was in that course of study that I built more skills in getting to know people, in deep listening, in talking with people to know the story beneath their story. But it was also in that course of study that I learned about the systems of oppression and the external realities that affect the suffering of individuals. It was there that I learned that if your house plant is dying, you don't try to fix the plant, but you try to fix the soil and the air and the sunlight around it. You fix the system so that plant can thrive. I spent my last semester of college in Honduras looking at these systems on a global scale. Nothing helps you understand the relationship between the global north and the global south like sitting across the table from a woman who's trying to decide if she should take her older daughter out of school to go work in the sweatshop down the street so that her younger son didn't become a street child. I was working with families. I was working with systems to try to prevent students from, prevent children from going to the street. I took that experience and built upon it by studying abroad in Russia where I looked at social welfare in the post-Soviet era. And then I found myself with no plan. I had planned to move back to Michigan after I got back from studying abroad to be with my boyfriend. However, we broke up while I was living abroad, and I ended up moving back to St. Louis and in with my parents. One, maybe two days after I was at, the, at my parents' house, my dad came running into the bedroom, and he said, Jenny, wake up. Monty's at the Klondike. I was completely confused. Monty lived in California. We were in St. Louis. What in the world was he doing at the Klondike at that moment? I pulled myself out of bed. I went to the Klondike. Monty was standing there with that goofy grin and that glint in his eye. And he invited me to go with him 
to the conference he was going to in Indiana. It was an incredible experience. I had not seen Monty in a couple of years. He'd moved to California. I was trying to figure out who I was in college, studying abroad. And, and all of a sudden, we were back in the same place, and there was this electricity between us. Me and Monty and his wife, Janelle, went on a road trip from St. Louis to Indiana, where we ended up at a conference together. At that conference, I was invited to move to California to live with Monty all because my dad was at the Klondike that morning. So bizarre. <laughs> I ended up moving there and working there and continuing to learn about healing from Monty. From there, I went to get a Master's of Social Work and to study healing and grief through seminary with a Master of Arts in Pastoral Studies. I had all of this knowledge and wisdom and experience, formal training and informal training, and I couldn't figure out how to pull myself out of that depression. I couldn't figure out what I needed to do to help myself get my feet back underneath me. Turns out, however, that I did know what I needed to do. I just needed to listen to myself. I needed to take those tender moments that people were giving to me and match them with the things that I knew about myself and the things that I knew that brought me joy and healing amidst brokenness. Before I tell you about that, I want to invite you to think a little bit about the tender and kind moments in your life and share them with one another. So there I was, having received all of these acts of kindness, like the ones you just shared, trying to figure out how to get myself out of bed in the morning and go to work, and trying to remember the things that brought me hope in the world. I started out remembering really, really small things. I remembered that I liked to watch the moon rise and that I had done that with my grandmother growing up. I remembered that I liked going to the symphony and went to the symphony with my parents. I remembered that I found magic in the morning dew as it clings on the grass, and I got up to see that happen. I remember that I enjoyed friends. I, imagined, I remember that I enjoyed long car rides. I went to the literature, and the literature said that pets are good for mental health, so I got a cat. I named the cat Zoe because it means life in Greek, and I needed to remember to pursue life. I baked because that's something that I really enjoy to do. And I gave baked goods away because I like to watch people smile when they're eating good food. I started to pull myself up through these small things, but only because I had the platform of my community beneath me. Only because they gave me a little bit of a lift so that I could see what I needed to see for myself. I spent a lot of time in those months writing and thinking, reading my favorite theologians and philosophers, talking to people that I think are wise, trying to figure out how to best position myself so that I could live in the fullness of life again, so that I could find strength in that brokenness. We're going to try another interactive thing. <laughs> One of the things that I did a lot during those eight months was read poetry. 
One of you has an envelope with the word poem on it. Will you stand up and introduce yourself? Can you? Kevin. Ask Ben to read this poem. Let this darkness be a bell tower. Quiet friend who has come so far, feel how your breathing makes more space around you. Let this darkness be a bell tower, and you the bell. As you ring, what batters you becomes your strength. Move back and forth into the change. What is it like, such intensity of pain? If the drink is bitter, turn yourself to wine. In this uncontainable night, be the mystery at the crossroads of your senses, the meaning discovered there. And if the world has ceased to hear you, say to the silent earth, I flow. To the rushing water, speak, I am. Rainer Maria Rilke. Thank you, Ben. That poem became critically important to me because it taught me to find strength in the pain and darkness, not to run from it. I could imagine myself moving back and forth while what batters me made me stronger in those moments. And that poem gave me the words to think about that. I read a lot of other poetry during those eight months, but I kept returning to that one. And it's become one of the poems that I most often send to other people that I know are dealing with darkness and depression in their lives. So often we're told to move around or over or under so often, we're told to eat pizza or watch Netflix. Very rarely are we told about the power of sitting in our pain, asking it what it's teaching us, learning from it, and then doing the process of letting it go. So one of the most healing things I was able to do was sit with the words of, those poem, of that poem and learn how to move through my pain so that I could let it go. One of the other things that I did during those eight months to help pull me out of my depression was plan a spiritual retreat. I love retreat, love it. I would do it all the time if I could, um, but I try to do it at least once a year. I've gone on pilgrimages, I've gone on silent retreats, I've gone to hermitages alone, I've done corporate retreats. For this retreat, I decided I was going to travel to Boston and go to a social retreat center called Still Harbor. I'd learned about it from some of my students and they really wanted me to check it out. So I figured, no better time to check it out than now. I'm craving retreat. Boston's a place where I don't know a lot of people, so I'll have the space set apart to be alone. And I, um, I booked a room about two months before I was gonna go there so that I had something to look forward to. Because one of the other things that I've learned about myself is that I can put my feet on the ground every day if I know that I have something to look forward to. So I booked a room at Still Harbor, bought my tickets to Boston. I was going in January, so I had to live through all the holidays before I went there. And about three or four weeks before I was to leave on retreat to Boston, I got a phone call from Monty's wife. He was in the hospital. His cancer was back and he was really sick. I sat there with this knowledge and information, looking into the holidays, knowing that I wanted to be with my family during that time, 
looking forward to retreat, knowing that I had set aside this place for my own healing, and started asking a lot of questions. Janelle was so optimistic. She was so certain that he was going to get better. I wanted to ride that optimism with her. And after a lot of conversations about whether or not I should go to California, or whether or not I should go to Boston, whether or not I should go to California for Christmas, or if I should go to California instead of Boston, we decided that I should stay at home for Christmas and that I should go to Boston. It was a great plan. But in those moments, I had to become really, really certain that I was okay never seeing Monty alive again. I knew he was really sick, and I knew that Janelle was optimistic, and I needed to find the space in between to make sure that I wasn't completely devastated if he died and I'd never seen him alive again. I was already operating at a bit of a deficit, and had I not done the work of really thinking about that, I'm not sure I would have been able to go to Boston. I talked to my parents about it. I talked to friends about it. I spent a lot of time talking to Monty's wife about it. About three weeks before I was going to leave her retreat, I sat down to write Monty a letter, knowing that it may be the last words that I say to him. I want to share that letter with you tonight, and I know that I couldn't read it aloud myself. So there are three people out in the audience who volunteered to read part of that letter. It's kind of lengthy, so it's in three parts. So if the three of you could stand up. There's one. Two, three. And if you, the three of you wouldn't mind um, introducing yourselves first so that we know who we're hearing from. So, who has part number one? Hi, I'm Matthew. Matthew, Robin, Patrick, thank you so much for reading these words. I'm just going to have you read so when there's a long pause, you'll know that it's your cue. Dear Monty. There are times in life that require letter writing. Many of those times for me also require finding the perfect card. As I thought about writing this letter, letter, only plain, simple, lined pages would do. I don't know if it is because it connects me to younger days or because, because there is something healing about filling blank lines with loving words. All I know is that the simplicity of words on pages seem right in this moment. The conditions of this letter are less than ideal. You are sick, in pain, and in the hospital. I am so far away and want nothing more than to stand by your side for a minute and tell you I love you before hugging Janelle and the boys. We recently chatted on Facebook where I told you about the definition of prayer by philosopher Simone Weil, absolutely unmixed attention. I have been thinking about that a lot as I am consumed by moments of unmixed attention for you, mostly in the form of sharing stories about you with my students. One of the first things I do with my classes is have them draw their civic path. It is a moment of reflection and a process of sharing. Every time I draw my path, for I, have always, for I always draw and share with them, you are there as my guide, mentor, and crazy person I jumped into a car with to go to General Assembly. A moment tied to our shared space of the Klondike and a moment that forever altered my life because it was the beginning of my move to California. Students love that story both for the spontaneity of the moment and the legend of 
good mentor. I live each day trying to be that mentor to them. I live each day becoming my version of you. I don't know who taught you how to invest in others, who your Monty was. But my students know their experience of me is tied to my experience of you. In so many ways, who you are and what you've taught me has become my true north. Things that I aren't maybe around you, not sure what that word was. <coughs> you've taught me how to love others deeply, how to tell people how to love them, how I love them, how to listen, to understand, how to grow family untraditional, in, in untraditional ways, how to laugh, how to think about God, all of these, all of these things and many more I know because of you, but most importantly, because of you, I know I am beloved of God and that I can help others understand about them, that about themselves. I'm a better me because I know you. I'm a better me because of who you are. And I am forever grateful that our kindred spirits found each other in this crazy world. I love you, Monty, and I love your family. Thanks for sharing your lives and love with me. It has changed me, and I get to share it with others. Praying for peace, love, and wisdom. Praying for healing. Always, Jen. put that letter in an envelope, put it in the mail. Two weeks later, I packed a bag and I went to Boston. I arrived at Still Harbor Retreat Center and it was pristine, so clear that someone cared deeply about that place. I was shown to my room, a simple box with a small twin bed and a desk that I unpacked the 10 books that I had planned to read on retreat. After unpacking my stuff, I left the retreat center and walked down to the harbor. I enjoyed the crisp January air in Boston. I returned back to the room and I slept so peacefully that night. The next morning I woke up and I went down to the local coffee shop for a cup of coffee. I prepared for a meeting with the spiritual director that I had at 10 a.m. I wanted to make sure that I knew what I wanted to talk to her about and that I was prepared for the conversation. So I did some journaling and some thinking and some walking, and I returned back to the retreat center to meet with her. We went to a small family room space. I sat in a comfy armchair. She sat on a couch. She asked me why I was on retreat. She asked me what questions I'd brought with me. I told her that I was asking questions of discernment and vocation. I was trying to figure out who I was in the world how I should think about what my next moves are in the world. She asked me how I plan to answer those questions. And I said, I have 10 books upstairs on a desk <laughs> that I plan to read while I'm here. They're by theologians, they're by philosophers, they're by people that I really think are wise. She looked me dead in the eye and she said, I don't want you to read a single thing while you're here. I was shocked. I had like planned this entire retreat to read these 10 books. Um, she said, what I want you to do is I want you to write your spiritual autobiography because all of the questions that you're asking can be answered with your story. Monty died while I was having that conversation. I walked out of that room to a voicemail from Janelle. I was alone in a retreat center 
in a city where I knew next to no one, and I was stunned. I walked up to my room and I called my mom. I told her that Monty had died. She asked me if she should come to Boston. I said, no, I'm okay. She asked me if she could go, should go to California. I said, I don't know yet, Mom. But I felt that love from her. I called several of my friends to let them know what was going on. And then I sat down and wrote my spiritual autobiography. Turns out, a lot of, your, a lot of life's questions are in your story. I thought a lot about Monty. He's a big part of that autobiography. I thought a lot about pivotal moments. I thought about the pivotal moment of getting in that car when I was 22 and driving to Indiana only to end up with a job in California. I thought about all the kindness that had been shown to me. I thought about forces out of my control that are, were making my job feel less than centering for me. And I learned from those pivotal moments. I'd like you to think about a pivotal moment in your life. Think about something that has happened, a decision you've made, a moment of serendipity, a conversation that you've had. Think about that. You all just shared dozens of pivotal moments, dozens of things from your lives that you learned from. You all did a small example of a spiritual autobiography. We aren't often asked to look at our own stories for wisdom, but you all found it there, or at least it seems like you did with the din that was in the room. I invite you to continue to think about that. So I sat for four days. I wrote my spiritual autobiography. I'm not going to lie, I also read some books. Um, <laughs> and then I got on an airplane and went directly from Boston to California to go to Monty's memorial service. I was in some of the darkest moments of my life, and I found some of the deepest healing in remembering a loved one who died. The community gathered there, and we celebrated Monty. We celebrated him through formal mechanisms like a memorial service. We celebrated him by going out to his favorite burrito shop. We talked about his love of Anne and Green Gables. We listened to his favorite musical artists. We drank his favorite drinks. We spent a lot of time talking about Monty's stories, learning from his life an amazing experience and it happened to be the culminating experience that pulled me out of my depression it was when I got home from California from that memorial service that I sent out the invitation to my friends to the thank you for helping me not kill myself party I think one of the things that I learned from these eight months is that healing happens in a lot of places it happens within us when we look inside ourselves and seek our own wisdom it happens in our community, our community that reaches out to us and our community that we reach out to. It happens with people that don't know that you're suffering and people who know the depths of the darkness you're dealing with. 
It happens in nature. It happens in grief. It's all around us. We know, I think we know, that the suffering is all around us. Sometimes it's harder to see that the healing is all around us, too. I hope tonight that you saw a little bit of that. On Wednesday, it was kind of a rough day for me, I walked out of a coffee shop and someone had put a sticker on the back of my car that said, Instill I Rise. That small act of kindness by a stranger who I later found out was some students at Washington University um, (laughs) gave me hope. It was a moment of healing. Another thing I learned in those eight months is that part of healing is being able to recognize the barriers to healing. Sometimes that happens when people show you the barriers to healing. Sometimes that happens when people invite you into wholeness that you've not experienced in a long time. And sometimes that happens when you think deeply about what your barriers to healing are. For me, it was that darkness and wanting to sink into it that kind of apathy that I needed to dismantle. It was my inability to see the magic in the world, that magic that had been such a friend of mine for so long. We have two more activities tonight. (laughs) A little bit earlier, while you were writing your acts of kindness on your note card, um, a song by Leonard Cohen was playing. Many of you probably know that he passed away in the last week. He was one of Monty's favorite artists and poets. And I'm going to ask Jack to play it again. As you think about a barrier in your life, it could be a small barrier. I was talking about this with somebody the other day, and they talked about their phone as a barrier to their healing. could be a larger barrier. could be a meta barrier. I'm not going to ask you to share these with anyone, um, but I want you to just write that on your piece of paper. We can recognize our barriers, and we can work to deconstruct them, but there's always a semblance of them there. There's often a shadow that we still need to work with as we're moving towards our own healing. Another place that I go for healing is meditation, and I'd like to end tonight by inviting you into a meditation with me. This is called a loving-kindness meditation, and it comes out of a Buddhist tradition. I first heard this take on the loving-kindness meditation on on being NPR's conversation around spirituality. I'd like to invite you just to get comfortable in your chair. Maybe put your feet on the floor. Take a deep breath and relax into yourself. I'm going to ask you to do some imagining, so if closing your eyes feels more natural, please do that. The first thing I'd like you to imagine is yourself. I'd like you to imagine yourself as a child, a child that you love dearly. And as I speak these words, I'd like you to intend them upon yourself as a child. May you feel secure. May you feel at peace. May you feel strong. And may you live with ease.
Now I'd like to ask you to think about the people in this room, the people that you came with, the people that you didn't know before I made you share something with them tonight. Hold them in your mind and think about them as I say these words. May you feel secure. May you be at peace. May you feel strong. May you move with ease. Now I'd like you to think about the people that you meet in your daily life that are mostly strangers. The person in the car next to you, the person you pass on the sidewalk, someone that you buy something from, someone that you don't know whether or not you agree with them or not. I'd like you to hold those people in your mind and in your thoughts and intend these words towards them. May you feel secure. May you be at peace. May you feel strong. May you live with ease. And now, because I think it's often hardest for us to turn kindness in on ourselves, I want you to think about yourself again. But now I want you to think about yourself here in this room, in the fullness of who you are, the beauty of who you are. And I want you to intend these words on yourself. May you feel secure. May you feel strong. May you be at peace. May you live with ease. Thank you. And that's a wrap. You can make sure to hear the other remastered Campfire at Home episodes by subscribing to Campfire at Home, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you liked what you heard and you're able, please leave a review. It helps others find our podcast and it supports our students. We'd love to have you come out to an event or take a class. You can visit campfire.com. That's C-M-P-F-R.com for all the details. And whether you live in St. Louis or nowhere nearby, there are ways to take classes and attend our events virtually. You can find out more at campfire.com. And again, that's cmpfr.com. As always, a big thank you to the Campfire team. The original producer on this episode, Jeanette Harris-Courts, our current podcast producer, Jeff Allen, who helped remaster the episodes, and everyone who volunteered at these Campfire events. Tonight's stories were recorded live at the Central Library in St. Louis, Missouri. Thanks for listening to Campfire at Home. I've been your host, Stephen Harowitz. Until next time. (laughs) 